everybody, I'm David, for those who may not know who I am. I always love reading the Old Testament, um, there's some terrific stories in there, but of course it's often talking about a culture which is so much older and completely different from ours, but bear, let's bear in mind that what we're trying to understand as we read this passage and as Jeff speaks to us tonight is about God's interaction with people at that time. We live in a different time, the same God still wants to interact with us. We're reading from Genesis chapter 17, and if you want to look up on the screen, it'll be there. If you want to read it in the Pew Bible, it's page 15, so very easy to find tonight. Genesis chapter 17, the whole chapter. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your house or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, But your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. 
I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. So I'm going to invite Jeff down to speak to us tonight. And uh, looking forward to what you can do with this. <laughs> Let's, just... <laughs> Let's just pray together. Father, we just thank you for... Uh, the opportunity to be here tonight and to sing together, to share together, pray together, and to hear your word. And Father, we ask that you will speak through your servant, Jeff, Jeff, tonight. Lord, may he tell us of your faithfulness, not only to Abraham and his descendants, but also to us. Amen. Thank you, David. And uh, <clears throat> uh, again, welcome. If you've all if you're not feeling welcomed enough, I welcome you again. And uh, yes, it's um, <clears throat> my choice to preach on this passage. Uh, when was the last time you heard a good message on circumcision? It's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's on everyone's lips, isn't it? <laughs> it's, <laughs> um, but uh, this, this uh, passage, as you uh, have been following through the narrative um, since uh, Abram was 75, called out of a uh, lucrative home life um, and now 24 years have passed uh, 13 years since he's had a son through a slave woman um, and uh, probably 20 something years since he's um, had a covenant made with God, remember about a month ago there was the idea of a covenant uh, being a beast that was cut in two and the Lord took upon himself uh, unilaterally on his own head without Abraham touching it uh, it was God's promise to follow through and to bless Abram. And it's, it's really in that context that we read this chapter, um, now that he's 99. And it's almost like uh, the Lord has let the years pass to ripen Abram for these events that are about to happen. He really wasn't um, ready yet. So things are moving. Abram's getting older and in God's calendar, we're getting to that time where the son of promise is to be born. This is a deliberate timing of God. And uh, Abram is about to not be the sole bearer of the promise, but it's about to shift to the next generation through him, if God keeps his word. And so there's a lot of ends to tie up in the contract. It's like a will, this particular chapter, 
who's going to get what as the goodies are distributed. Not when Abram dies necessarily, but it needs to be made certain just where those children of Abraham and the rest of the family are going to stand. And that's really what this chapter is about. Um, I have a slide uh, here that might help us if you can read my tiny writing. Um, Really, there's a pattern throughout this chapter, which uh, it makes it a lot clearer, I think, that uh, there's a little pattern here where the Lord begins in the first three verses with the fundamental, the principles of what it is to be a covenant partner with him, what he wants from his covenant partner. It's like a set of expectations. There's four little ones there we'll look at in a moment. But then, regardless of how Abram goes, remember this covenant is unconditional, it's unilateral. God alone takes it upon himself. But he still can have expectations for Abram's conduct. If you're going to hang around with me, God is saying, then this is how I like my covenant partners to behave. And then the Lord goes on and he says, as for me... And this is what he is going to promise, verses 4 to 8, about five verses to six verses each. And then he comes back to Abram, as for you, this is what you can expect. And then as for Sarah, in verses 15 to 19, what she can expect. And in the middle of that, there's a little promise for Ishmael, which probably wasn't going to be part of the will initially, but God adds this in. And then we have the response once Abraham understands these expectations. As David has said in his prayer um, and and in the introduction, you know, we are very different to Abraham in in several ways, Uh, culturally, uh, historically. um, We have to understand too that this fellow Abraham, uh, he's had very little instruction. Unlike most Christians here, he's never been discipled. He's never gone through a set of studies or been prepared for baptism or something. Um, He doesn't sit in a tradition, a long tradition of thousands of years of Christian thought, which he just inherits. Um, He's only had a few spasmodic uh, experiences with God separated down the years. That's all he's got to go on. But he knows God personally. And he's trusted the promise of God, which is the most important thing. But in many ways, in terms of uh, his spiritual life, um, he's an infant. He may be old in uh, calendric years, but spiritually he's, he's actually quite underdone. And uh, so this is really a bit of a teaching chapter for him as he goes forward. But it just goes to show... you know how far you can go with God when you're faithful to the amount of truth that God has given you and what you cherish with what God has done. So we have this pattern of as for me, as for Sarah, as for Abram, as for Ishmael. Uh, We have new names given to people throughout these times, a new set of expectations and a new level of precision in terms of the promises that God has given Let's look in the introduction here. This is what it is to be a partner with God in principle. Now that parallels to ourselves. If God could expect this of this man with little teaching, without the Holy Spirit's assistance, then what can he expect of us? He says, first of all, the Lord renames himself. 
We're told it's the same God. It's the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which stands for Yahweh, the I am, or I will be what I will be. He appears to Abram and he says, I am God Almighty. El Shaddai is what the, the song used to sing. And uh, that's really what this, uh, this name means. It really speaks of one uh, who has no rivals. His capacity is beyond comprehension. Um, you know, we've just seen a, an image of that this week as this incredible space telescope has shone pictures of the cosmos from different angles and increased our awareness of the, the sheer scope of the universe and universes, whatever it is that we live. And it's good to pause and look at that because that is the canvas of Christ. That is his handiwork. Uh, just worth pausing there whether our image of God brackets the cosmos or whether we have something else. Because that's the God who reveals himself to Abraham. This God who is beyond uh, constraint and comparison. And it's this God who tells this fellow to walk. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Let's look at these three words. Walk speaks of a lifestyle. Uh, the word walk of halakha in Hebrew, is, it, it crops right up right through the Old Testament. Then Paul picks it up and puts it into Greek in the New Testament. And we're told to walk with Christ, walk unto Christ. It's, a, it's really the word for conduct of a steady state. When we are saved, when God deals with us graciously, he doesn't take us to the end point immediately. We look ahead to that end point, but we take a steady trajectory there. We only live one day at a time. And each day is to be a day of faith. And that's what God is saying to Abraham. Every day you get up, it's a day of worship. It's a day that's important. And that way you will realise your hope. You don't realise your hope. You don't have hope in the Christian life by suddenly getting the hope straight up. You grow in hope as you walk, as you meticulously, methodically press into the wind. That's how your hope grows. And that's the nature of the Christian life as well as the life of this, of the first believer. And he says... Walk before me. Now, he's really saying have a consciousness when you walk that you are conspicuous to God. It's an astonishing thing to realise as we sit here that what you're thinking about right now, what you're thinking of doing after the service, what you're thinking about that you've done today, what labours and what burdens upon you, he knows that thought. You are conspicuous. You are constantly under surveillance by the mind of God. But it's not an oppressive surveillance. It's not like Big Brother or CCTV that follows you everywhere. He's saying this is the proper attitude for a human being. And it's contrasted to those people in the Old Testament of unfaith. The people of unfaith you read about through the Psalms, like in Psalm 94, and Isaiah is full of that, where uh, he, he says, the Lord, the, the, the wicked says, the Lord doesn't see, the God of Jacob doesn't perceive, or Isaiah says, 
How ridiculous. Did he who makes the eye not see? Did he who makes the ear not hear? You know, God is constantly attending to even those things which we think are hidden. And you can think of those stories in the Old Testament where, where people thought that they could run from God. Jonah could hide from God. He could escape from Nineveh. And somehow God wouldn't know that's, that's a man who has a defective image of God. And, and what God is saying to Abraham here is that if you're going to walk with me, you've got to do something about your thinking. You've got to realise that you are conspicuous. But that's a healthy way to live. It, you really, if we all did that, we wouldn't need any teaching. If we got up every morning and we just simply said, well, I'm going to either please God or displease God this next moment. If we simply live to please God, boy, would we, we'd be a force inconquerable, honestly. And the world would see us. And then he says, and be blameless, thirdly. Now, that word blameless, I think, is is probably better translated. It's a word that means complete. It means like a, like a finished jewel. Um, I want you to walk in that way, which is the opposite to conniving and complex. A, a believer, a faithful person, doesn't leverage God by doing religious things to get something from God. That's paganism. Uh, a real believer is a person who's simple through and through, who is one substance, wholehearted, you might say. Sincere is a better way to put it, as opposed to complex or calculating. That's what God wants. And uh, it's fascinating. And he says, in the version that we read said, then I will establish my... No, it's not then. This is not a condition. The Lord says then... And I will establish my covenant with you. For your part, this is what I'd really like to see, and I'm still going to be doing my part. And then he goes on in verse 4, as for me, this is what I'm going to do. I've promised it, even if you throw it back in my face, the promise is a promise is a promise. That's the nature of grace. It is a firm, unbreakable bond that God makes with us. And the response of this is that in verse 3, Abram fell on his face, which is just a euphemism for worshipping God. Don't know what posture he did. I don't think geographically he fell on his face. It's just, that's what it is. The word means to worship, that set of words. And Abram couldn't help but be rejoicing that God had revealed how to walk with God with him. And that was a joyous thing. You know, we moderns tend to think, post-Freud, post-Nietzsche, we tend to think uh, that anyone who lays a constraint upon our conscience is, is sort of cramping our style. They're going to constrain us. But not Abram. He was so happy to be on the inside track with God and to really understand what his God, El Shaddai, the immense God, wanted. Thank God for that. And that's why we come to church, is it not? That's why you study your Bibles. That's why you listen to people like me, uh, because you've been privileged to know the mind of God. And uh, he has revealed that to him. That should bring us to worship. You can't detach worship from the knowledge of God. And then God makes his promise. He says, verses 4 to 8, as for me. And he simply recommits to what he's already said in chapter 15, but now he makes it a bit more precise. First of all, he changes Abram's name 
from meaning exalted father, you know, one who's been specially blessed, to now father of a multitude. It's getting near. We're about to open the floodgates of this new uh, era of this family. He's making it more explicit. And that's an important thing to the ancients. It is not so important to us. But names confer a destiny. When God gives you a name, he's already seen the finish. And so he can bless us with that name. I was uh, saying in the morning service, it reminds me of a, a fellow I knew in Queensland, a friend of my sister's. Um, studying up there and at Queensland Uni and he'd been named by his father who couldn't speak a word of English, he spoke Mandarin but he asked an English speaker can you give me some, some names that are really powerful and the fellow who gave him the advice didn't quite understand what he was going to use these for and he said you want powerful words he said yes it's got to be powerful he said okay well uh, there's names like um, dynamite and so this fellow called his first son Dynamite. The fellow said, uh, got any other words? Oh, TNT. That's pretty powerful. Oh, called his second son TNT. The guy I knew, his name was Atomic Wong. And uh, he went through life and, uh, you know, I'm not sure what people made of him when he, he met them, whether they thought he was pulling their leg, but uh, he just introduced himself. Hi, my name is Atomic. Well, is it? Well, what is it? It's atomic. <laughs> you, know, you, can, you can see where we go. But it's, um, that's, that's an aspirational thing that parents do. It's, it's not really the same as what's happening here. Uh, God is actually conferring a destiny upon this man. It's more than just saying, think big, have power, the power of positive thinking. You know, it'll, it'll do you good. That's not what's happening here. This is going to be the Lord's doing alone. Grace alone will make this possible. And that's what Abram is doing. It also means that from this point on, Abram is committed to a life of witness. Wherever he goes on these, these strange trails throughout the, uh, the land of Canaan, as if ever he's asked his name, he's got to tell them, I'm the father of many nations. Oh, really? At 100? How many kids have you got? Well, none yet. <laughs> You know, it's, it's a mark. It's going to draw the faith out. He's not going to be a private person once you've got a name like that. And he'll be telling people about what God is going to do. And that's a fascinating thing. We could think more about that. I think it's a fascinating uh, experience to know about Middle Eastern Christians in some countries. When you are made a Christian, when you come to life, they, they may baptise you, but they do something else. They give you a tattoo of a cross on your wrist. People with that cross go to buy in an Islamic context. It's likely that they will not be served in this particular context. They're marked for life with the mark of Christ. And that's what this fellow was really doing. He is being marked for life by his name. But not just by his name. Then the Lord says... Third sequence, he says, as for you, now here's what you've got to do. And we've got to understand that now we're in this transitional zone. It's a, the page is turning. It's all been about God and Abraham, but now it's going to be about God and Abraham and Abraham's family going down the line. And they're going to be asking, well, how come 
we are in the blessing? How can we be sure we're going to be blessed with the same promise that was given to you? You know, for all we know, God just had you as a favourite. How do we know that we are part of that covenant agreement, that legal thing that God has written? Well, this is where we have to understand there's a bit of a pun happening in the text here because the word covenant in Hebrew or to make a covenant is, or more literally to cut a covenant is really two words. It literally means to cut a gash. And so half the time in these passages you're wondering whether the Lord is talking about a gash in an animal or a human being or a cut or a legal document. He's playing with the language. The Lord is. It's a pun. And so he says, and this is my covenant or my gash, my slash with you, which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male amongst you shall be circumcised. Hold on. <laughs> Did I hear rightly? And, uh, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. But it's not a new covenant. Verse 11 and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So the Lord is saying that the way this family will go through history is by keeping this practice. And if ever they wonder whether God is still faithful to them, they know that their father was circumcised and his father before him, and it goes back to Abraham and that command that God gave. You see, the sign of circumcision isn't so much a horrible thing as it's an assurance given by God right through the generations. This is what we today would call a sacrament. The, the action itself of a sacrament is it's a holy thing where the action matches the thing signified. So the procreative organ of the male is a sign of the biological extension of the promise. And God is putting his mark on that right through. And the Jews are those people that extend from that decision and that command. In a way, it's, it's fascinating. And then not only there, but this is what circumcision is about. The Lord basically says in 13 and 14, he says it twice, lest Abram think he didn't quite hear it right the first time, a servant that's born in your house also shall be circumcised. You know, those, and remember, Abram had heaps of servants. We know he had at least 318 mercenary retainers that he picked up from that last story that we had. And now he's got that entourage plus a household of servants that he's picked up along the way, and he's purchased them in the markets. And isn't it interesting that the Lord says they're to be circumcised too? You can see what God is saying here. It's an expansive, it's not just the biological heirs. Now, what God is saying to Abraham is the way you treat your servants is as if they were sons. And these people, they're not things, they're not commodities. You might have bought them, but God has just transformed slavery into social welfare. This is what he's done. It's very much... What Paul bases his teaching on in that famous passage in Galatians 3, 27 and 29, where it says, For as many of you were, as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. He is our status. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither, here we have it, 
slave nor free. This was God's ultimate quest. We are now living in the fulfilment of this mark, this sign, this gash, this covenant that was given 1850 years before Christ. There is no male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. He levels the status. So God, in effect, is accommodating the practice of slave ownership. And as soon as he's doing that, he's transforming it under the light of the gospel which we live in. It's phenomenal theology given to this man. He was no longer to treat these people as mere possessions, as things. There's no such things as things and humans. You're all in the image of God and you're all potentially children of God, children of Abraham, heirs according to promise. That's amazing. No man would ever have thought of his slaves as his automatic heirs, but God did. Those people were lucky to be bought by this man in that time. And that's an ethical principle which comes down the ages. And the church has forgotten that many a time. But when the church is under the gospel, it comes full again. The whole book of Philemon is about Paul reminding people of this principle. Have a read of that little letter sometime. But then he goes on, as for Sarah. Now, he's got a, the Lord has to firm up her status because she's not a descendant of Abraham and she's not going to get circumcised. So where does she stand? And lest Abraham think, and this is like the neither male nor female part of Galatians, uh, Abram needs to be reminded that though she's not a descendant, she's thought of by God as an heir of promise. And so wonderfully there, she has a name change. She has a destiny. No longer is she Sarai. She shall be Sarah, which simply means princess. The Lord has a view of her as royalty. And he's to be, she's to be held with that respect in this family. Now, Abraham's taking this on and, and the Lord riches up the same promises that he gave to Abraham. He now enriches them with her and she's also going to be a source of blessing. Uh, she'll be a mother of nations and kings of people shall come from her. Whole, whole nations are going to come from the offspring of this woman. And Abram is about to pray again, but he, he's been carrying this incredible tension within him of barrenness on the one hand of his wife and his own age and his own impotence and blessing. Barrenness and blessing, it's a hard, it's a hard fissure to live with. And, but as he starts to imagine these words, it's a compulsive reaction. He bursts out laughing. I think he bowed his head and all of a sudden he had visions of, of his wife, 90-year-old Sarah, in a lovely mauve uh, Chalcedonian maternity frock. And, and it was just too much to bear. And at the rate at which her child would be getting teeth, Sarah would be losing hers. It was just too much to, to hold. And he... He's not some act of disbelief. And, and so he says, um, just to check that we've got things right here, Lord, um, are you saying that a child is going to be born to a man who's 100 and his wife is 90? And he said, oh, Lord, 
Now watch his words in verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael might walk before thee. You see, he's saying, you know, you've just given me the principles that I might walk with. Well, this guy could walk by those principles, surely. It would be a lot easier for me to believe. Is this really where we're heading here? And you've just broadened the scope of circumcision, so slaves, and this, this was a fellow born of a slave, they're just as much part of the family, so how about we just resolve this now? It's Ishmael, isn't it? That's what he's saying. And the Lord says in eloquence that went through Abram's consciousness like a rivet, no, it's going to be Sarah. She is going to be the one. And you have to get ready for that. Your wife Sarah will bear a son. You'll call his name Isaac and I'll establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. But then he says, by the way, as for Ishmael, it's not that he doesn't count. I've heard you, behold, I will bless him. Now, Abram just asked a question about Ishmael, but the Lord has taken that and in sheer grace, he's taken that as an opportunity as if it was a request. And he's blessing this fellow who has no truck and trade with God, really, except for the expansiveness of God's compassion. I've heard you and I'll bless him. I'll make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. And he shall be the father of 12 princes and I'll make him a great nation. If we had time, I would like to show you on a map where those nations ended up because they're real nations that are in the Middle East today. This is a geographically solid uh, bit of archaeology we're reading about here. But the point is, 21, my covenant I will establish with Isaac whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. You know, set your watch by. She's going to have the baby. Now something suddenly happens in verse 24, 22 to 26, in the end of this last section here. We read and we're told again and again in three different ways, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all the servants born in his house and on that very day, verse 26, without delay, that same day, Abraham did not delay. He took, and it would have been an interesting conversation. Boys, can you all come in a minute? You know, just got something the Lord has asked me to pass on to you. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> um, we might just line you up in uh, heights. <laughs> that afternoon was an afternoon to remember. <clears throat> And, um, but you see, he didn't delay. Now, something has happened here in this guy's life. Something has happened here in this guy's heart. He has realised that the Lord has given him a promise which will be tangible and is a sign that will speak to him down through the ages and his children. He realises the Lord means business. And what has happened here is that instead of trying to... <clears throat> leverage God and tra- instead of trying to take matters into his own hand or Sarah's hand, instead of trying to help the promise along, he has finally surrendered to the hope of the promise. Instead of trying to constrain God by his own capacities to conceive of what is possible, he is now believing in El Shaddai, the God for whom all things are possible. 
You know, all of us are going to face situations in life. Some of you might face periods of severe unemployment or sickness. Some of you might end up having families and children. And some of those children are going to be like a dagger in your heart. And you might have to go year after year, day after day, hoping and hoping and hoping that God will answer your prayer. That's the life of faith. And when we entrust our our requests to God, we do that not because we think that it's a magic or a science that we can leverage God with, but because we trust in the goodness and the sheer infinite greatness that our God is the God who threw the stars into space. And he can do it and if we surrender to our hope. You know, from time to time we have people, I had a fellow recently ask the question, I don't particularly feel sure of my faith. How can I be more sure? And I don't think he was asking for uh, another clincher argument or an apologetic defence of the faith. You see, the Lord has actually designed things because he knows that we are intellectual, feeling, communal, psychosocial beings. He knows how we're put together. He made us. And we too, as Christians, are people that are going to have times when our faith is going to need to stand on something. And we fail ourselves if at those times we turn inwards and we examine our feelings. Our feelings are fickle. Our feelings are not the basis of faith. God has given us something else. He's given us his promise and his words. But he's given us something else. He's given us two other things as Christians. He's given us baptism and the Lord's Supper and they're outside us and they are ways that God says to us, my promise is still good. You can rest on it. Colossians chapter 2 is a a wonderful little passage which we look on in baptism classes because it contains this solid truth. How can I be sure that the promises of God operate upon me? that my life is bracketed within them? How can I be sure that my sins will continue to be forgiven? How can I be sure that God will forget my sins? How can I be sure that if I die, I will rise? Here's the answer, Colossians chapter 2. And Paul says, and you can read it as well as I can, if I can only find it. He says, In him, isn't that fascinating? In him you have been made complete. It's exactly what he is working in, in Abraham. Except Abraham's was a command. It was an aspirational target. But we have actually been changed spiritually. We have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. What does that remind you of? He is El Shaddai, none other. And in him you... If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you were circumcised 
as much as these guys were, but a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh, that's your old sinful self, the one God used to know all too well. That's gone. By the circumcision of Christ. Not his circumcision as an infant. He's using circumcision as a metaphor of Christ being cut off from the land of the living. Christ was cut off and he took your flesh upon himself that he might kill that fleshly body and die our death, the circumcision of Christ. And you see what this is saying. Paul is saying that this day in this 1850 BC period when this wandering Aramean was given this damn silly command to cut the foreskins off every male in his tribe and all his household and all his entourage, when he did that, that day, it was a type or an illustration of what would happen to us today when we believe in Christ. He would effectively, that sign points to the cutting off of Christ from the land of the living. And remarkably, when the Spirit awakens faith with us, we are buried with him in baptism. You see, frequently I think we Baptists have sort of said that baptism is an important thing, yes, and it's an obedience, oh yes, but it's far more than just a pointless obedience that we do. This is how God can say to us, the promise I've given to the first Christian is as good as the promise I've given to the last Christian. That you stand on the same grace. You stand in the same solidity of the truthfulness of God. And baptism is God's way. He knows that sometime, someday, someplace, you're going to ask that question, how do I know it works for me? And he says, remember your baptism. That's the day you and I died together and rose again together. As far as I'm concerned, the Lord is saying, you and I are like that forever. You know, we often think that baptism is when we say, God, we believe in you. But it's actually just as true to say, it's that point in your life where God says to you, I believe in you. You are mine forever. I encourage you to think and act on those things with urgency. Let's pray. Our blessed Lord and God, we thank you that you're the God who stepped into the sadness of human history and you've revealed yourself as the God of solutions, the God of grace, the God of hope right through history. We thank you that we stand amidst this story. We don't know when you're going to come again, but we look forward day by day to that day when all will be put right. We thank you for the confirming nature of your word and the ordinances that you've given us to reassure us until that day comes. Hasten that day, we pray. But before then, give us the wherewithal to walk faithfully with you 
each step of the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.